Hey y'all, welcome back to Best Virginia. I'm your host Jordan, and on today's episode, we're going to talk about one of America's first identified serial killers, the Bluebeard of Quiet Dale. Five innocent people killed, not a sign of a human. Merriam-Webster defines the word bluebeard as a man who marries and kills one wife after another, while the verb bluebearding has even appeared as a way to describe the crime of either killing a series of women or seducing and abandoning a series of women. The bluebeard of Quiet Dale, Harry F. Powers, was known by many names, such as John Schroeder, Joseph Gildow, A.R. Weaver, Cornelius Pearson, the Mail Order Romeo, and most famously, the bluebeard of Quiet Dale. His birth name was Herman Drenth. He was born November 17, 1893 in Beerta in the Netherlands. He migrated to the United States in 1910 where he lived in Cedar Rapids, Iowa by himself for a short period of time until his family arrived in 1911. The family was in search of a better life and began making a living through farm work. In 1926, young Herman decided that he deserved more than barely making it on his wages from farming and moved to West Virginia where he assumed the character of an Oklahoma oil stock promoter named Harry Powers. Less than a year later, in 1927, he married Luella Struther, the owner of a local farm and grocery store, after responding to her Lonely Hearts ad. Now if like me, you don't know much about Lonely Hearts ads, they were posted in magazines and newspapers at the time to help people find love and connection. Lonely Hearts was described as the world's greatest social extension club, so it was basically the tender of the 20s. After the two got married, he had begun taking out his own Lonely Hearts ads. Postal records indicate that replies to his ads poured in at a rate of about 10 to 20 letters per day. Powers fancied himself a ladies' man, which by today's standards he most definitely was not. Uh, standing at five foot four, weighing 175 pounds, he was often described as pudgy and always sported thick-rimmed glasses. Under the alias of Cornelius Orvin Pearson, Powers began writing letters to Asta Eicher, a widowed mother living in Park Ridge, Illinois, with her three children, Greta, age 14, Harry, age 12, and Annabelle, age 9. On June 23, 1931, Powers went to visit Miss Eicher and her children. Powers left town with Eicher shortly after his arrival, leaving her children with Elizabeth Abernathy, until she received a letter saying that Pearson, or Powers, was coming to pick up the children to join him and their mother. When he picked up the children alone, he sent one of them into the bank to withdraw money from his mother's account. The child returned empty-handed after the signature on the check was determined to have been forged. When neighbors began asking questions, Powers ensured them that Mrs. Eicher was fine and that the family was on a trip to Europe. Shortly after his time with the Eichers, Powers began writing to Dorothy Pressler Lemke from Northborough, Massachusetts, also through a Lonely Hearts ad. Powers brought her to Iowa to marry her and convinced her to withdraw $4,000 from her bank account. Strangely enough, and unknown to Lemke, 
he'd had her belongings sent to the address of Cornelius O. Pearson at Fairmont. In August of 1931, police began investigating the disappearance of Asta Eicher and her three children. Their investigation began with Pearson, who they discovered emptying the Eicher's house. They found love letters, which led them to Quiet Dale, where they contacted Clarksburg police about Cornelius Pearson. Detective Carl Southern discovered that there was a post office box rented in the name of Cornelius Pearson that went to the home of a local vacuum salesman, Harry Powers. On the day of his arrest, Powers was detained under the suspicion of manslaughter and the disappearance of Iker and her children despite a lack of evidence or of the bodies of those missing. When he was searched, police found five letters addressed to five different women. Inside his home was a trunk full of letters from more than 100 women from all over the country. Letters and photos found in the trunk suggested that he had been operating as a love racketeer for more than a decade before even moving to West Virginia. An undeveloped roll of film left in a camera was developed by police showing pictures of Powers and Lemke together. When questioned, Powers insisted that the Ikers had gone west, but turned right around and said that they had come with him to West Virginia. The police ran his fingerprints and attempted to match photos of him to determine whether he had any criminal history in his past. It was discovered that he had been incarcerated from 1921 to 1922 for burglary, under his birth name in Barron County, Wisconsin. Police searched a garage on a small farm owned by Powers in Quietdale, where they found dried bloodstains but no bodies. The next day, Powers was escorted to the property, where they found a series of four rooms under the garage. In those rooms, police discovered bloody clothing, hair, a burned bank book, several articles of jewelry, and the bloody footprint of a small child. A crowd began to form around the scene as police dug up a freshly filled-in ditch where they found the bodies of Asta Eicher and her three children, along with Dorothy Lemke. Evidence and autopsy reports showed that Asta, Greta, and Annabelle Eicher had been strangled to death while Harry Eicher's head had been beaten in with a hammer. Dorothy Lemke was found with a belt still wrapped around her neck, with which she had been strangled. More love letters were found in the trunk of Powers' car, in which he had written back to various other women with promises to court and marry them. Powers' wife, Luella, denied any knowledge of her husband's criminal activity and was never charged with any crime. Other women began coming forward saying that Powers had written to them as well. Bess Stores of New York told the Associated Press that her wedding had been planned for the day that Powers had been arrested. Other women said that Powers had proposed to them and convinced them to empty their bank accounts only for him to vanish. While Powers was being held in the local jail on September 20th, citizens from around town formed a lynch mob of well over a thousand people and attempted to take him from the jail. The mob was dispersed using fire hoses and tear gas. Powers was then moved to the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville. Powers' five-day trial began December 7, 1931, and was held at Moore's Opera House in Clarksburg due to the anticipation of a large crowd. Numerous witnesses testified to the evidence in Powers' home that he had been with the victims and had picked up their luggage. Powers also testified for himself. On December 12, 1931, he was sentenced to death for the killings of Dorothy Lemke and the Iker family. When questioned about the mountain of valuables found on his property and who the owners of the jewelry were, Powers said, you've got me on five, what good would 50 more do? 
Fast forward to March 19, 1932, just before 9 a.m. Powers began walking up the 13 steps to the gallows with his hands and legs chained and stood behind the dark curtain that separated him from the audience who filled the immaculate white room. Warden A.C. Scroggins and his guard pulled back the curtain to reveal Powers to the spectators. He was dressed in a dark suit with white pinstripes, a neat light blue tie, and a white broadcloth shirt. He was clean-shaven and in excellent shape. The only thing missing were his thick-rimmed tortoiseshell glasses. He stood there, pale, leering at the audience with his light blue eyes. Powers stood between the warden and the prison chaplain, E.M. Geisy. The warden asked him if he had any farewell statements to make. After hesitating for a moment, he replied no. The chaplain said, We commit Harry Powers' soul to thee, and ask that thou pardon his sins. Then the guard at Powers' rear slipped the black death cap over his head. Deputy E.C. Brill signaled for the execution to commence. Without further hesitation, Powers dropped through the trap, which was sprung by three attendants simultaneously pressing releases so that none of them knew who signaled the trap's release. Without even a tremor, Powers hung there for 11 minutes before being pronounced dead by Dr. R.A. Ashworth, prison physician, and his assistant, Dr. O.P. Wilson. Assisting the two prison doctors was Clarksburg physician Dr. H.H. Haynes. Immediately after Powers was declared dead, he announced that he had a complete confession of his crimes. He presented a written confession of the murder of Mrs. Lemke and Mrs. Iker, along with her three children, stating that the five were buried in a narrow ditch near Powers' Chamber of Horrors garage on his wife's deserted farm in Quietdale near Clarksburg. This farm would later be known as the Murder Farm. Dr. Haynes and Sheriff W.B. Grimm of Clarksburg told newspaper reporters that Powers confessed in detail to them about how he killed his victims, one of whom he tortured for over eight hours before finally killing them. Powers had said to have felt sexual pleasure when torturing his victims. He was once quoted saying, It beat any cat house I was ever in. Sheriff Grimm said that Powers had confessed to the killings a short time after his arrest and denied that the confession had been forced from Powers through a third degree. He went on to say that when Powers was asked to sign the confession, he initially refused because it involved my wife and her sister. When asked if he would sign the confession if their names were omitted, he replied, Sure, I'll sign it. Inside the envelope, addressed to Warden Scroggins, was a letter that contained eight haunting words. There are more in West Virginia than Wisconsin. Before his execution, Powers insisted that his trial had been unfair, that it was held in an opera house where people go to be entertained, that he had been harassed by a mob twice, but had been refused a change of venue. He said that the community was inflamed against him and that falsehoods had been published about him. When Sheriff Grimm had questioned him on the whereabouts of Mrs. Lemke's jewelry, he began sobbing, placed his hand on a Bible, and said, With my hand on this book of God, I swear by the teachings of my mother that I know nothing about it. Only an hour later, when he was to be escorted to his death, he remained totally calm. Dr. W.A. Marsh of Greenlawn, who attended the hanging, said that he had heard from a reliable source that he was unwilling to name that Powers had admitted to the murder of Dudley C. Wade, a carpet sweeper salesman, who mysteriously disappeared on May 10, 1928. At the time of his disappearance, Wade and Powers had worked for the same carpet sweeper company. After Wade had disappeared, Powers took over management of the agency. 
Company officials found a number of sweepers missing. Powers insisted that Wade sold them off and ran off with the money. The company offered a reward for the recovery of the missing sweepers to no success. Then a search warrant was issued and many of the sweepers were found with the serial numbers changed in Powers' garage. Powers was arrested but blamed it on Wade, saying I had recovered the sweepers and was going to turn them in, which led the charges to be dropped. He then sued the sweeper company and got most of the reward that had been offered for the stolen property. Wade was never found. Authorities were certain that he was either dead or had changed his name and moved away. T.A. Hoganson, a coroner in Grundy County, Illinois, accused Powers of killing an unidentified woman in Morris, Illinois, because of some inconsistencies stated by Powers in an interview. Powers had denied that he had ever been in the state of Illinois, but was known to have been there many times visiting with the Iker family. A housekeeper reported an odor from a garage rented by a man matching Powers' description shortly after the woman's body had been found wrapped in burlap lying next to the highway in Morris. Only five of Powers' victims were ever identified, but some believe that there were many, many more. Some authorities believe that Powers killed as many as 50. While that's, that's probably pretty unlikely, however... Um, based on the, the evidence that we have and based on, you know, just the way that he seemed to present throughout this whole thing, um, it does seem like five was a low number as well. Uh, while that's what was found, um, there's a lot of evidence supporting that that wasn't his first time doing this. And many people wonder why Powers had not killed his wife, Luella, or if maybe she knew more than she had let on, um, while I was researching for this topic, I, I tried to find some information on Luella, but I couldn't really find much. Um, also couldn't find anything really that had, you know, that had anyone questioning that she was involved in this. Um, to me, you know, she probably, she might not have known to the extent, but there had to have been some kind of questions. Um, she was, she owned a local grocery store that they ran together um, and she was a farm owner, and, you know, while that business was a lot different in the 20s, um, as much money as he claimed to have brought in through these rich widows, uh, you know, that seems unlikely that that would go unnoticed. If you look at inflation rates, $1,000 in 1930 is equivalent to about, uh, to $14,500, roughly, in today's, in today's economy. So if you, in the one instance where he tried to have uh, Miss Iker's son withdraw $4,000 from her bank account, that would be almost sixty grand today. Um, I know if I came home with an extra $60,000, my fiancé would probably ask me, at least I would hope so, I would hope she would ask me where it came from, or at least be some kind of concerned. Because um, chances are, if you're bringing that kind of money home as a farmer with without it being related to your work, uh, it'd probably be a little sketchy, um, or at least kind of raise a few eyebrows. Um, so, you know, I, I thought this was an interesting story because a lot of people, when they hear about serial killers and things like that, they don't really equate that to West Virginia. Um, you know, Charles Manson spent some time here in his youth. Uh, I plan on talking about that some more later. Um, but for the most part, uh, we don't really that's not really tied to our history, at least from my knowledge. Um, but if you look back, you know, this was one of, I'm talking from the research that I did on this topic. Uh, 
this stuff made national news. Like it was all over the place. He was on the headline of every newspaper on the front page, um, especially when they started stringing these kill these deaths together. Um, and then there was a lot of speculation uh, about other women who were being killed in similar circumstances. And um, anytime a rich, anytime a rich widow was found dead at the time, they automatically added her to his tally, um, which might be where the number of fifty came from. Um, it also might come from his statement of saying, you know, you got me on five, what good would 50 more do? You know, if you're trying to, if you're trying to plead innocent or not guilty to these things, um, seems like he didn't really do a great job. Um, he, he seemed to cave pretty easily. Of course, the evidence, I mean, the bodies were found on his property. Um, he, he tried to play it cool for a little while, but it sounded like that didn't last long, um, it seemed like it took no time for authorities to to catch up with him, too. And I think that's pretty impressive how quickly these things were all kind of tied together and how quickly they found him. Um, but it also doesn't sound like he tried to cover his tracks too well. Um, you know, to me, it sounds like he thought rather highly of himself being able to, and you know, a lot of it seems backed up too. He was able to get these women to agree to marry him um, after writing a few letters to him. That has to inflate the the ego a little bit. Um, not to mention it. It seems like it started at a young age with him trying to leave the life of farming behind uh, because, and there, were, and this was quoted in most sources that I read that he thought that he deserved better and that that wasn't good enough for him that type of life. So he moved out to West Virginia. I don't really know how... I couldn't really find much information how he ended up here in the first place. Um, whether it was, you know, through his wife's Lonely Hearts ad, and maybe that got him to move. The timeline, as far as that goes, was a little muddy. Um, but also, you know, a lot of his younger life and things... There wasn't a whole lot of information. What I gave to you guys was all that I found. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot... Because he he wasn't really... Here and there, he had some uh, petty crimes under his belt. You know, with some burglary and, and a couple things like that here and there. He was obviously a con man um, with the stuff related to Mr. Wade. I think that that was... You know, I think that that was probably him... I don't have any evidence, but, you know, other than the the vacuums being found on his property with the serial numbers changed, that's a little sketchy on my, you know, in my mind. But the fact that he just seems so nonchalant and is able to turn that around and then kind of looking, the, looking at that through hindsight after he did these things, after he was convicted and executed for these murders, that... You know, he was possibly linked to this other murder that he said, oh, no, I, I didn't have anything to do with that. I, I found the vacuums, even though I have no idea where he went, and they just so happened to be in my property. I was going to turn them in, you know, I was trying to do the right thing, uh, but now I'm going to sue you for, you know, dragging my name through the mud and make back what you were offering for these stolen vacuums. I don't know what the going price for a vacuum in 1928 was, but... You know, I would imagine it was probably a decent amount. I I haven't done a whole lot of research about vacuums and their and their you know, their worth and all that, but 
it seems like in in 1928, early late 1920s, early 1930s, they probably were worth a decent chunk of change. Um, but you know, the fact that he was able to play that off and use it to his his advantage, um, and it didn't seem like he was at all concerned about Mr. Wade's well being. You know, he was just able to say, "Oh, he he probably left." Um, but I ended up with these vacuums if you want them back. Also, pay me that reward. Um, you know, I think that these little stories here and there um, might not equate to murder, but I think it does say a lot about his character. You know, I think I think he was someone who, like I said earlier, thought very highly of himself, but also was quick to take advantage and was quick to manipulate the situation in his favor. And it didn't seem like he had much compassion for those or much remorse for any bad things that happened to anyone. The fact that he said that he was aroused by the screams of his victims. The fact that he didn't question much about the whereabouts of his co-worker who went missing and uh, and was presumed dead. You know, the fact that he used his wife for her property and also took advantage of her, you know, of her financial stability to kind of mooch off of and still wasn't fulfilled, still had to chase these rich widows and have them empty their bank accounts and murder them. Um, you know, after reading this stuff, I, I kind of wondered, I, ha- I had a few questions. You know, one of my questions was, why didn't he kill those other women? And also, on the flip side of that, why did he kill the women that he did? So, you know, if, if, if there was some inconsistency there, you know, I don't know what, you know, what the circumstances were or how, how well he would have been able to get away with it or maybe they were a little bit closer to home. Um, I read that several of them were in the Detroit area, uh, kind of a little more on the east side of the United States. Uh, where I mean, some of his, some of the women that he took advantage of, they were all over the country, um, north, south, east, west. Um, he didn't seem to discriminate as far as all that. He saw, he saw profit to be made, and he he jumped on the, jumped on that opportunity. Um, you know, something I think that's really cool, and and I've heard of, I've heard of this, but I've never you know never read the book or. Or watch the movie, but in 1953, um, there was a novel called *Night of the Hunter*, and then a movie that was critically acclaimed, you know, a big deal of the same name, made shortly after that. Um, the book was written by West Virginia native Davis Grubb. You know, I, I kind of want to check it out now after reading this story. I didn't know a whole lot about it, but you know, I think it's, I think it's very interesting to see. You know, I like looking at all the different parts of our history. Um, there was another novel about the Iker murders um, called Quiet Dell, which was written by another West Virginia native, um, a woman by the name of Jane Ann Phillips from Buchanan. Um, I just think it's so cool to see the different parts of our history. You know, we have a lot of rich culture here. We have a lot of dark stories we have a lot of kind of mythical stories. Uh, we have a little bit of everything. You just got to look in the right places. 
and I'm trying my best to to check out all those to leave no stone unturned. But there's still so many big stories that I've not even you know that I've just kind of dipped my toe into, and that's what you know that's what this is all about. I think I'm I've been hearing back from some fans. I think that's really cool. Um, I have I recently had a guy reach out to me. I'm going to talk talk some more to him. He was telling me some stuff about about ancient West Virginia and I'm just getting, you know, I'm just at the tip of the iceberg with that. This guy seems to know his stuff and I'll talk some more about him and about this the ancient stuff from our state later. I'm definitely going to do an episode, possibly more than one about that. I it's it's some crazy stuff for sure. And I have a few more interview episodes lined up, and I'm I'm real excited about those. So I, I hope you guys are still enjoying this um, as much as I am. You know I, you know I really do love this stuff, and I think it's there's so many stories to tell, so many. And I'm only, you know, I'm only one man. I I really love that people are starting to reach out to me. That lets me know that people are listening. You know I can't do this. I won't I won't do this without fans. If you guys stop listening or if you know if people tell me like Jordan you know this isn't this isn't doing it for me anymore, man, then we got a problem. I'm here to I'm here to help, I'm here to teach, I'm here to entertain, and hopefully I do all those things. You know, I I'm still fumbling my way through this podcast thing. This is you know, this stuff's still so new to me and I, I can't do it without my fans. I can't do it without my listeners. I can't do it without the people that are helping me through this. Um, I've had people reach out with topic suggestions. I've had people, you know, hand me packets of information on on topics, and I take every bit of it in. I have a giant list that I've mentioned before that I I just I'm constantly adding. I've probably added ten to fifteen topics to it this week. Um, there, last time I checked, there were well over 100, 150 topics that I plan on, you know, that I want to weed through and I want to find, I want to give you guys some popular stuff mixed with some obscure stuff. And I think, you know, there are so many different, just so many different styles of stuff. And plus with this being, you know, we're getting close to the fall time, spooky season. So that's my favorite time of the year, hands down. So expect to hear some spooky stuff. Expect to hear uh, more murders, more monsters, uh, hauntings, ghosts. Expect to hear some of those in the next few episodes. Um, on the next one, I do have something special for you guys. Um, I have a couple of great things coming up, a couple of really cool interviews that I think you guys are going to love. And hopefully we can kind of, the people I'm doing these interviews with, hopefully we can help each other out. And help each other kind of tap into different different audiences because that's what we're all in this together. You know, I think I hope to build relationships with these people. Um, you'll see on the next the next episode an interview I do with the gentleman. Um, we talk about building connections because that's what that's what this all is. We're all trying to share these stories and share these different pieces of our culture with everyone, not just people from our state, but people from. Whoever wants to listen, whoever's got got time that they want to give. So with that being said, I, I appreciate having you guys with me again today. Um, hope you learned something from this. I, it's, it's such an obscure story that was so famous back then. Um, a lot of people don't tie this to West Virginia either. 
Um, but I hopefully you guys learned something. Again, I can't do this without you, so please keep listening, keep subscribing, keep sharing. That's what this is all about. The more people listen to me, the more people I have to share stories with, and that's what I love. So be sure to check out my social media sites. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Best Virginia Podcast. Um, also check out my merch store on Teespring. You can find that you can find that link on my Facebook and Instagram pages. Um, I got some cool stuff up there. I, and again, it's getting to be spooky season. That also means hoodie season. And there are definitely some hoodies on there. And not to mention, through this whole COVID situation, um, there are some face masks that I have up now with with my logo on there. And I think I think that I think they're really cool myself. Um, I've sold a couple so far, so you know. And a lot of that money goes that I make goes right back into this to make some more merch to make connections with some people to, you know, make out, to make stickers to hand out to people. Um, I'm definitely not making a big profit off this thing, if any. <laughs> I, I just think it's fun to keep it going. So please check that stuff out, recommend it to people, show people, share it with people. You know, just please do what you can to help get this out. I can't do this without you. So until next time, I'm Jordan, and this has been another episode of Best Virginia.